This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeehouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Professor Mark Shapiro from the University of Scranton. He holds the Weinberg Chair at the University of Scranton in Judaic Studies, and he also is a graduate of Brandeis and Harvard Universities. And Harvard University, I believe he was the last doctoral student of Professor Isdor Tversky. And on a personal level, Mark Shapiro was my Orthodox advisor back when I was in Brandeis University in the early 90s. So it's a pleasure to talk to you, Mark. Thank you very much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. He's the author of numerous books which have caused a great stir in the Jewish community at large, and in particular in the Orthodox community. Among them is the book we're going to talk about today, which came out about two and a half years ago, called Changing the Immutable, How Orthodox Judaism Rewrites Its History. And this book is about how Orthodox Judaism, and in particular, more right-wing elements within Orthodox Judaism, though not exclusively right-wing elements, take canonical texts and other writings, as well as photographs and more, and change them for various reasons. So, Mark, can you briefly describe the phenomenon of right-wing Orthodox communities, the Haredi world, changing its own texts? You know, we have a long history, um, over a thousand years of uh, books and uh, writings that appeared in different places under different circumstances, uh, where different ideas uh, were common. What happens, however, if today a certain view is standard and the view is advocated by communal leadership, and yet in one of the uh, texts, which are not heretical works, that's not what I deal with, but one of the standard works, you find something at odds. It could be halakhically, it could be uh, dealing with ideology, at odds with what today is regarded as the mainstream standard accepted position. In certain communities, it's thought that it's best to keep this from the masses so as not to subvert the current approaches. And therefore, the best way to do this is to... Uh, make these passages disappear. And Wait a minute. That's what I did in the book. Why, why would the approach not be, okay, obviously our approach is not the only approach, and it's okay for Torah thought to include more than one way of looking at things. We have, throughout Chazal, classic examples of multiple approaches. The Gemara is filled with multiple approaches, and why can't it be said, he said that, but we say this. Why does it have to be erased from history? Yeah, I mean, you raise a good point, and if uh, someone pointed out in a uh, discussion of uh, the book that if these people had their way on the Talmud, the position that, for example, that chicken and milk could be eaten together, uh, that would just be deleted out, because you don't want people to assume that there ever was such a position. But uh, the difference, I think, is that today, unlike in the past when these books were only read by intellectuals, Talmudic Chachamim, today you have a much wider range of people reading these works. And now there's many translations as well. And it is thought by these circles that the masses who never before, I mean, the whole idea of Dafyomi has opened up the Talmud to the masses and never before happened that these things can be dangerous, can help uh, raise questions about why our communities are doing things one way when we see there are alternative options. How can you hold, we answer your question, how can you hold the allegiance and loyalty of people if they see there's alternative perspectives, it's much more difficult. You can't get away, for example, by telling them that all great rabbis have opposed Zionism or similar things. Now, on the other hand, is this really a new phenomenon? You imply that it's really something that has taken place perhaps just this century once there's mass literacy and people are able to have access to literature that in the past was reserved for great scholars. Is this something which is new in Judaism or have we been doing it longer than the past century? 
Well, it definitely exists uh, prior to that. I even give examples where I think we see this in the Talmud itself. For instance, uh, there's a passage in Halakhic Midrash that's cited by a, in the name of a woman, and yet when it appears in the Bavli, it's cited anonymously. So it's been suggested there's an example of censorship. And uh, we have examples of censorship even in manuscripts. And I'm talking about censorship directed towards Jews, not the censorship that we usually think of directed towards non-Jews uh, or non-Jews. Or non-Jews towards Jews. Yeah, but there's no question that in the last 30, 40 years there's been a serious expansion of this. Uh, I mean, even in Art Scroll, uh, you find this. Well, can you give some examples? Well, for instance, um, there is a Rashi on Chumash that uh, appears in every Mikraud Kedolo. It's uh, Parshat Vayera dealing with Tikkun Sofrim. Sometimes it appears with brackets around it, other times not, but it's appeared... In every edition, anyone who does the uh, the Shnai Mikra each week knows this, but if you look in the new Mikra Al-Kadola Dart Scroll, or even in the Stone Chumash, it's simply empty. Hey, the space, it's missing. Not the space isn't empty, I mean, they, they've taken it out. Wait, it's not the translation that's missing, the words of Rashi themselves are missing. Yes, yes. So wow. they will tell you that, well, it's in brackets, that already raises a question, although from the scholars who examine it, are clear that uh, this is original to Rashi. But anyway, it appears in all the editions, they will not say that they are censoring Rashi. Their attitude will be that this Rashi never could have said it. And I wrote about the Rashbam. The Rashbam has, I think it is, six separate comments on the first chapter of Reshit in which he describes uh, his understanding according to the simple meaning, not halachic, shot, that the day actually begins in the morning. And all of those passages, which appear in different verses, they've all been removed and cut out uh, by arts. Again, not just the translation, the actual words of the Rashbam itself. Yes, in their Mikraut, Kedolot, Chumash, you will find his commentary on chapter one of Reshit, but yet every mention of this has been removed. So it's not as if they're, I don't know what to make of it. If they thought the commentary wasn't authentic, they'd remove the entire commentary. They have just removed those points which they disagree with and think are impossible to imagine that he really could have said. Now, I'm not sure if it's fair for me to ask you to get into the heads of those who are doing this, but wouldn't they have some reluctance to toy with the words of the Rishonim? It's one thing to change a book that was written in the past hundred years, or even a Gadol Torah who they don't want to admit was into Zionism or Yeshiva University or something like that. But to take Rashi's own words or to take the Rashbam's own words repeatedly and to take them out for the sake of whatever positive pedagogical goal there is, isn't there some reluctance on their part? Uh, well, I mean, there should be even more than reluctance because uh, Rabbeinu Tam um, actually has a cherem against anyone who would alter uh, the text of the Talmud, so I'm assuming it applies here as well. Well, maybe but, they took uh, that out also. I think they would tell you that he couldn't have said it, so it's, they've convinced themselves. Although people have said I'm naive in saying this because I gave a whole list of numerous great authorities, including their own teacher, Yako Kamenetsky, who's one of the people who was a teacher for the people involved in Art Scroll, who discusses the Rashbam and explains it. So others have suggested that the real reason is fear of the, their, that their addition of the Mikra Gadol we put in Cheyrim or something like that. It's, it's very hard to understand. I like to think that they've convinced themselves wrongly, but convinced themselves that it's not really Rashbam. It's hard to imagine anyone who claims to be in the Orthodox community acknowledging it's written by the Rashbam and still deciding to remove it on their own. Well, how about an example, which I remember you gave about Rav Zevin? Rav Zevin, who is certainly modern, in meaning he's a member of the modern world, he was a Zionist, even though he's also 
a Chabad Hasid, to the best of my knowledge. And yet he wrote in his Moadim Bahalacha positive things about the state of Israel when it was translated by Art Scroll. And you mentioned this in the book. Those passages were removed. They can't deny that he wrote them. It's one passage in particular. And yes, and they were actually called on this. And they responded, this is years ago, that they know that later on in his life, he didn't have such a positive view. And Rev Zevin's grandson, who actually gave Art Scroll the authority to translate this, was outraged and said no one asked him and no one had the permission to do this. And it says Rabbi Nachum Zevin from Haifa. So it is an outrage. And there's an example of where they knew what they were doing, but they wanted to print the book and therefore they couldn't print the book and sell it to their clientele with having this. So they simply deleted it. And if you'd ask them, and if they were honest, not like the letter to tradition where they weren't honest, but if they were honest, I think they would say that Rav Zevin would rather have his writings read by people, even in, even in the Haredi world, than not. And if it requires removing these passages to have it read, then he'd be okay with it. And below, his grandson says, absolutely not, and that this is unacceptable. To the best of our knowledge, is there any truth to the matter that Rav Zevin became less of a Zionist later on, such that Arshkrol's claim has any truth to it? No, no. I mean, Rabbi Zevin has spoken to people, and uh, Rabbi is Yacham Zevin. No, there's no evidence whatsoever. Hamodi Malacha is the most printed book, I think, uh, in the 20- Hebrew book in the 20th century, other than maybe Shmir Shabbos Galchasa and standard works like the Kids of Shulchan Aruch. It was reprinted, I think, 30 different times in his lifetime, and or maybe a little less than that, but he never changed a word and never... And at the end of the day, what does he say? He simply says three words in discussing whether the status of Yehudan Shomron, now that Israel has conquered these lands, and he says in parentheses, Ashrinu Shazachinu Lachach, therefore... Happy are we that these lands are now under Jewish control. That is the extent of his so-called Zionism in the book that they chose to remove. That is a pretty big thing. But I want to talk about something else now. We've spoken a little bit about censorship, and in some ways censorship obviously can be quite troubling, but it's not even as troubling as changes. And I believe you discuss when people not only take things out, but actually alter text. Does that happen too? Yeah, sure, that happens, and uh, it's really just uh, one step along the continuum because uh, it's less egregious to remove something, but uh, once you've given yourself the ability to remove something, the next step is to uh, start wondering, well, uh, what can I put in its place? So yes, we have examples of that uh, as well. Here, can you give us an example? Well, I just wrote about one where, and since you mentioned Rav Zevin, I'll (laughs) mention him. He has, in his book, Ishim V'Shitot, he deals with the Ruggetshover. And he deals with the strange practice of the Ruggetshover. The Ruggetshover used to learn Torah, even on Tisha B'Av, and even when he was in Avelot, mourning. And when he was asked, how can you learn Torah if you're sitting Shivri, you're not allowed to learn Torah, he says, as Rav Zevin records, that I know it's a sin and I'll uh, be punished for it, but the Torah is worth it. When this text was published by Rav Kasher, in one of his writings on the Ruggetshover, he wrote a lot on the Ruggetshover. In the first edition, he includes this, but in the second edition, he actually removes those words and he substitutes something of his own making that when the Ruggetshover was asked, he replied that he's relying on a, a passage in the Jerusalem Talmud that says that if uh, you feel such a great desire for learning, you're able to study even when you should be in mourning. And that never appeared in Rav Zevin. Rav Zevin never said that. That's an invention of Rabbi Kasher. Um, 
It's almost it's akin. It's really a f- form of forgery, I should say. You know, it brings us to an interesting point, which Rav Kasher was not really fully in the Haredi world. He was part of the religious Zionist world as well, correct? Correct. So this really is a phenomenon that has not only been confined to the Haredi world. We see it elsewhere as well. In what context, aside from that, have you seen religious Zionist works, which we think of, at least here in Israel, as being more of the modern Orthodox variety? Where do we see examples where they're going to change things? Well, I mean, generally, you don't have changes. Rokasha is an interesting situation because there's other examples, I think, where he did this as well. But, I mean, you take, for example, um, in translation, there's a uh, translation of Maimonides' uh, letters. And in the original, the Rambam has a comment which maybe today people will take offense at. He speaks of the women, the children, and uh, the ignorant. And in the translation, which is done by a modern Orthodox rabbi, he chooses to translate that as the unenlightened. Mm-hmm. In my book, I argue that this he lost a great teaching opportunity because the Rambam is actually quite liberal when it comes to the essential nature of men and women. He differs from many of the medievals. But here's an example of where, in a translation, for politically correct reasons, a, um, the translation is just altered. And uh, so we have examples of that in the modern Orthodox world. You have in the conservative movement as well. Really? But in the Haredi world, it's different because, um, at least with regard to altering tr- our perception of truth, so I'm not talking about necessarily altering text, they ideologically have reasons to do that. Uh, yeah, the conservative movement I just discussed in the book, I mean, we have a blessing in the, uh, the Shemon Esri that says, Now, it clearly means resurrect the dead, but the conservative movement has a problem because they don't believe in that. So uh, we have examples of uh, translations of that passage where instead of translating it literally and then having a note saying that, well, today we have a different perspective, Nechayi Hametim is translating as all sorts of different versions. You can imagine, you know, uh, everlasting memory or uh, life life eternal. You can think of all sorts of translations, but those are not the authentic. And the translators know they're not the authentic uh, translation, but yet they do it anyway because they feel it's necessary for their readers. You know, it's very interesting only because... Given that the Haredi world, as you say, their practice of censorship seems to be the most egregious in the Jewish world, and yet the Haredi world, at least by its own self-definition, is that which is most reverential towards the past, and they believe that the past really is so much greater than anything we have now, and at least on the surface, everything we're trying to do now is to try and replicate Judaism as it was 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, when things were better than they are now, and yet it seems by censoring and changing things that were written in the past, in reality, they're actually doing the opposite. Do you think there's any truth to that statement? Okay, uh, a couple things. Rabbi Schwab has, Shimon Schwab has a famous essay in which he says that we are not interested in history and we're not interested in knowing about history, you know, the, the facts that occurred and uh, the, we're interested in being inspired by history, you know, uh, whereas from a historical perspective, you want to know about disputes and things like that. So already you see that the understanding of history is very different than what you might think in the more modern world. But your description of uh, the Haredi world sounds like something which they tell the masses, but I dare say that no one in the Haredi world who's an intellectual, and there are loads of intellectuals, most of my readers are from the Haredi world, no one believes what you said. Really? They all are aware that things have changed, and they think things have changed for the better, at least many of them do. And so no one would be troubled by that at all. Um, In fact, if many Haredi, though, were very troubled by my book, 
not the book per se, but what I discuss, because they really believe in the ideology of Haredi'ut. And the idea that uh, the book makes, I guess, or the implication some could draw of it, that the ideology is supported by fraudulence, that's offensive to them because they don't believe you need to offend. So they are more upset than anyone about the censorship because it's, in their mind, it's an insult because it shows that the ideology they believe in can only be supported by lies, by denying that there were different positions. And there's, a, for example, the Otsar HaChachma site, the forum, has discussions there devoted to censorship. And they are, in the Haredi world, some of them are the big, biggest exposers of censorship. People in the Haredi world itself are troubled by this more than anybody else, and they expose it? Yes, because they, they think what it means. The implication of censorship means that the ideology can't stand on its own. It can only survive through fraudulence. So if you're a real believer in this, then uh, this says that your ideology has, can't really stand on its own two feet without fraudulence. So that's something that many, many people in the Haredi world are very bothered by, and they are very opposed to the censorship. I mean, the modern actually, most people don't care. It's not, it's not their world. It doesn't affect them. It's in the Haredi world that you have a huge dispute over this. I wanted to ask you about this on almost an ethical, moral level, because I'll give you an interesting story that happened. I was in a car when the book came out, about two and a half years ago, we were driving to a bris in somewhere in Givat Shmuel near Tel Aviv. And as we were driving, I was in there with two other people who both had read your book, and I'd read it as well. And we were discussing how great the book was. And full disclosure, I said, you know, I had one problem with the book, which is not really a problem with the way you wrote it, but it was disturbing to me in a different sense. Because almost at the end of the book, in your final chapter, the discussion you have over there is, and this is how I remember it, and please tell me if I misunderstood or if I'm getting this wrong. I was waiting for you to say in the final chapter, you know, and this is terrible and we should try to under, you know, try and change it because historical truth is so important. And yet that's not where you went. What you said was, you know, there's a lot of precedent in the Jewish tradition for not really being upfront about the past and really, okay, and that's the way it is. So first of all, did I misunderstand the conclusion? And second of all, is this true? Meaning, is there really no moral ramifications for us and say, look, we have to accept that this is part of the way things work and we should not be outraged by this? Uh, many people have said that the last chapter is the most troubling. And, you know, I didn't, uh, when I started writing the book, I never expected to have the chapter like that. But then I started investigating. You know, I, obviously, in my own personal opinion, and I speak about this a lot, I think truth is obviously important. That's, uh, I'm a historian. However, what I was able to uncover as I delve further and further into this is that there's really two perspectives here. I believe there's really two traditions, and I think due to apologetics, primarily because the modern Orthodox world, one tradition has been covered up. If you look in the Talmud, there are numerous passages which seem to acknowledge that fraudulence is okay for a higher purpose. In fact, if you look at Art Scroll, it has no problem explaining these uh, the way the text is without any apologetics. I have to be honest and admit that there are sources that permit this sort of thing that we, not necessarily altering a text per se, but certainly covering up, certainly creating false portrayals. I can't deny it. They're there in the Talmud. I think there are two traditions. Now, I don't accept one as a modus operandi, and I don't think today, in fact, Rebchaim David Halevi said that all of these sources that permit fraudulence in the past no longer apply today because... Uh, it's very easy for people today to find out the truth and then the rabbis will lose all respect. However, I think we have to be honest and admit that this doesn't come out of thin air, that this is a tradition, that it's there and it is troubling. But, uh, you know, there's an old saying about Tosfot, 
that you know the questions are better than the answers. <laughs> and I think uh, if I succeeded at least in the last chapter of showing that it is more complicated, and I don't think it's my job in a scholarly book to be criticizing the way I might in a, in a more popular book. I, I think, uh, look, I've been called the art scroll apologist, if you can believe it, precisely because of the last chapter. But I wasn't apologizing for art scroll. No, I was trying to understand and explain. Right. No, that was quite clear. And when I say I was bothered by it, I was bothered by the conclusion. But, you know, there's a different level also, because, as you say, there are two traditions that appear, starting all the way from Chazal. And the Mechilak Vodo, I would like to argue and I'm curious what you think about this, that there's sort of a third tradition, which is much more modern, from Rav Dessler. And I'm not sure that his position really is, I'm sure there are plenty of people who disagree with this, but I'm not sure that his position is really so old as people might make it out to be. And he famously says that truth is not what really happened. Truth is synonymous with having good intentions. And falsehood is not about saying something that didn't happen. Even if you say something which is true, but with bad intentions, it's false. Would you agree that that is not necessarily such an ancient tradition and that might have a strong effect as well on the way the Haredi world looks at some of these issues? Uh, the problem is, what do you do when you have a passage in the Talmud that seems to acknowledge that falsification is permissible in certain circumstances? I and mean, we all agree that's the case. I mean, the Talmud describes if you're at a wedding, uh, do you say the bride is beautiful if she's not? And we know the answer is that we do because there's certain values that trump absolute truth. So once you open the door to that, the question is how wide do you leave the door open? All Rav Deslu was really saying, you can forget about the semantic argument about truth, he was simply saying that truth is not the most important thing and that there's higher values than truth. The question is how You're far defining truth the way we normally define truth, not as he defines truth. Well, he's based, I mean, the word, I wouldn't, I don't see any value to the, his uh, formulation because then you're taking the word, there's no, has no meaning anymore. But if you take the idea of what he's saying, uh, it does flow out of certain passages in the Talmud, but it raises more questions than it really answers, I think. You know, Professor David Schatz wrote an interesting article a few years ago, and in that he argued that people in the modern Orthodox world actually are living with a fundamental contradiction. He said, in our world, the world of, let's call it people who are enlightened, people who believe in historical truth, we acknowledge that Midrashim, when you look at a Midrash, it's not talking about something which actually happened. It's talking idiomatically. It's there for pedagogical reasons. It's teaching us an idea. And usually in the Haredi world, they're more reluctant to say that. They want to say that what the Midrash says is literally true. On the other hand, Professor Schatz points out, nowadays, we're the ones who are most outraged by things you talk about in your book, about things like people changing history for the sake of pedagogy. And yet, he says, we have to acknowledge that we're the ones who say that Midrashim are there for exactly that reason. And he gives his own answer. I'm curious what you think about that. Obviously, as an historian, Literal truth is very important. Do you think that we have a contradiction in the way we look at Midrashim as, no, it's okay for them not to tell the truth about historical truth, I mean, in order to teach something, and yet, at the same time, nowadays, we might be disappointed by that in looking in Art Scroll, changing things in order to teach us? No, not if you understand that Art Scroll is following a tradition of so-called history, history in quotes, you know, uh, of historiography. Remember, in the modern world, We've only been doing history for a couple hundred years, but uh, we have so-called historical works going back a long time. When you read, for instance, when you go to Masada and you uh, go up on the mountain there and uh, the tour guide tells uh, the story of uh, Lazar and his final words to the people before they committed suicide that appears in Josephus. And you have to ask yourself, well, where does Josephus get this? Well, he made it up. 
And uh, it was thought acceptable in ancient times, in Greek and Roman times, to insert dialogue in people's mouths to come up with stories. I mean, that's how history was written, with an agenda. So when you look at it this way, Art Scroll, they are following in a tradition that history doesn't have to be 100% accurate. They're not just inventing things, but, you know, creating things that are not really accurate. Um, that that's really a very traditional approach to history. Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi has a whole book in what you called Zachar, in which he said, you know, how history, historiography is is really not part of our tradition. So in that sense, it doesn't bother me. Now, as for the Midrash example you gave from uh, Professor Schatz, there's a big difference because um, Midrash is being understood to ne- to not be historical, never intended to be historical. People get upset when they see books from Art Scroll which claim to be history, and they clearly couldn't be history. They, they, the facts are simply not there. But again, I, um, as I quoted, it doesn't bother me, and as I quoted from uh, Rabbi Schwab, he said, we're not so interested in the complete truth, historical truth, we want to be inspired. If they come into my world, I'll give you an example. You know, if in the Haredi world, which has become quite extreme now, they don't have any pictures of women, if they want to have that, you know, it doesn't really bother me. It's their business, they do what they want. However, if they want to come into my world and say, you know, well, well, this is the way it's always been done or something like that, then that becomes different. Uh, in fact, one of the newspapers in America said that, that if Hillary Clinton was elected president, they wouldn't have a picture because a Haredi newspaper would never have women's pictures. And yet even the Satmar 30 years ago, 40 years ago, had pictures of women in their publications. So if they tried to come out of their world and assert things as historical fact, then I think the facts need to be made clear. But if their so-called history is used as simply a form of um, hashkafa training, maybe, for their youth, then it's really following in a path, and it is like Midrash in a sense. You know, Barrow Wine once said, when he was asked about one of these Godolim stories, he said, I don't know if it's true, but they don't tell these stories about you or me. So, I mean, that's what their works are really all about, as much about the present as the past. So you have to see them as a form of Midrash, I think. Okay, so it doesn't bother you. <laughs> What's your feeling for we who are not in the Haredi community? What should we do? Do you believe that there's a place for censorship in our community? Or is absolute truth really that important that it should be an ultimate value? Obviously, we know that in Jewish law, ultimate truth, absolute truth is not the ultimate value. Lashon Hara proves that because we're not allowed to tell the truth in certain situations. But when we talk about text or anything else, is there a place for censorship? Or should we be on guard against this and really have give it no quarter in our communities? What do you think? Now, I, I believe that uh, censorship should be given no quarter, that we can't alter texts. As Schneer Lyman once said, we don't alter the texts of our Godolian, you know. We don't know more than them. I mean, the, the idea of censorship implies that I know more than the original person. However, this doesn't mean that every idea needs to be shared with every community. I mean, Rev. Cook already says that if you know that something could be dangerous to someone's faith, you shouldn't talk about that. So you, we could have this idea that certain truths, and the Rambam deals with this, that certain truths are not appropriate for certain communities. That is certainly acceptable. But in a, in a written text, it's different. Like when my book on the, my article on the 13 principles came out, I got a letter from someone at one of the Haredi yeshivas saying to me, I shouldn't have published it because this is the sort of information that should only be kept among people who know, and once you write it down, then everyone has access to it. I, I wouldn't go that far. I think when you deal with written literature, you have the right to deal with anything you want. Um, 
unlike in the Rambam's day where he thought that certain things shouldn't be put down. But in terms of speaking, I think there still is a need. We don't tell our children certain things. And every rabbi knows that certain things he'll say in a class, he won't say publicly from the pulpit. So I do believe, maybe this makes me a bit of a Memondian or Straussian elitist, that there are still certain ideas <laughs> that don't need to be shared with everyone. Mark, thank you very much for being with me today. This was very, very interesting. And I have to tell you that I'm part of a group of people who always look forward to any time you write something, whether in print or online, because it's always fascinating. And I'll tell our listeners right now that if you haven't done so yet, go out and purchase the books of Mark Shapiro because they're all phenomenal, whether it's this book now, Changing the Immutable, or one of his earlier books, which caused a huge stir in the Jewish community about the limits of Orthodox theology and reexamining Maimonides' principles of faith, his biography of the Sridi Age. All of these are really, really terrific. Mark, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you for being with me. Thank you for having me. I'm Scott Kahn, and you've been listening to The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com.